Open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. If you have one of our black Bibles, it's on page 945. Uh, and, and again, if, if you need a Bible, we want to encourage you, just keep that one, okay? There's a little, um, little insert page in the front of that that helps you understand what that Bible is about, specifically that, that uh, translation. It, it encourages you, if you don't know where to get started in reading, all those things are in there for you, okay? Write your name in it, because we have several that look alike, so if you leave it on accident, then we know it's yours, and we can get it back to you, okay? Uh, but, but keep that. Every week, we open our Bibles together, and so I want to encourage you to have one in front of you so that you can look down and see that I'm not making these things up, but that God himself has written this for us through uh, multiple authors over many, many years that are all doing the same exact thing, pointing us to Jesus Christ, okay? So I want to encourage you. Page 945 in those welcome uh, table Bibles. John chapter 5, if you brought your own. We're going to look at the first 30 verses today. Last week, we finished up this this uh, larger section, starting in chapter 2, ending in chapter 4, that's centered around four sacred Jewish institutions. Okay, if you remember those, uh, w- one was water jars for purification, uh, when Jesus turned the water into wine at the, the wedding. Then, then the temple itself, uh, when Jesus told them that, uh, that uh, they asked, what sign will you give to show us your authority in these things? And he said, uh, tear down this temple and I'll raise it in three days. They're standing in the temple when he said that, but he wasn't referring to that temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. And then uh, he has a conversation with a rabbi, a a sacred institution there with Nicodemus in chapter 3. And then he meets the Samaritan woman uh, at Jacob's well in chapter 4. Those are those four institutions that are sacred to the Jews. And John focused on on these things in order to show how Christ is the true and greater reality to all of these things, to which they all point. And this next section, now that we're beginning, here in chapter 5, we'll go through chapter 10, and it will uh, center around four Jewish feasts. So we had four institutions, now we're going to go through four feasts. One of those is the Sabbath, which we'll talk about today. Uh, Another one is the Passover, then the Feast of Tabernacles, and then finally Hanukkah, okay? Uh, And then And not only will John show us again how Jesus is greater than these things, but they will also then serve as a backdrop for the growing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the Jews that eventually and ultimately leads to his crucifixion. And then finally for us, the glorious resurrection. And so in this passage that we're looking at today, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, and that led then to an argument with the Jews in which Jesus made these audacious claims about himself that were even more staggering than the miracle that he performed by healing the man at the pool. And we'll quickly see that these claims draw us then into this conflict. We cannot merely peer into this conversation as bystanders. Jesus' claims demand a response from all of us, and the way that we respond, and I don't exaggerate when I say this because Jesus himself will show us this, the way that we respond is truly a matter of life and death. So I want to pray so that the Lord opens our eyes and our ears and our hearts so that we receive his word and we do respond in the right way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is faithful and true, just as your son is faithful and true. And we thank you that your faithful and true spirit lives in us who believe in your son to guide us into all truth. And we pray this morning 
that as we open the truth of your word, that you would stir in our hearts a greater affection for Jesus and a greater desire to follow him in obedience so that others might hear his voice, might see him and respond in faith instead of unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may or may not know this about me. I'm a rule follower, okay? Some of you know this very well about me. Others of you uh, might not. So I don't cut in line, okay? I don't eat food past its expiration date. I don't bring more than 20 items to the checkout lane that's the speedy one, right? Which that probably doesn't even exist anymore because they're all like self-checkout, okay? But I follow all the important rules like that, right? Now, those might seem silly, but they're still rules nonetheless. And they're meant to be followed nonetheless, right? It's easy, though, especially when we think about our relationship to God. It's easy for us to assume that we are honoring God because we're following the rules. It's easy for us to assume that we're honoring God because we're following the rules, but sometimes we focus so much on whether or not we're following the rules and which rules we're following that we fail to actually think about whether or not we're really, truly following Jesus himself. But we need to understand this, and this is what we'll see in our text this morning Honoring God is more than just honoring a list of rules. If you want to honor God, here's the main point. If you want to honor God, you must honor God's son. So we're going to look at it this way, okay? We're going to look at sort of two sections here. One revolves around honoring the Sabbath and one revolves around honoring the son. And so we need to, we need to, to begin this morning by looking at the context that sets up the conflict that then leads to the claims of Jesus uh, and then our, the call for us to, re, to respond to him. And so let's listen to the word of the Lord together. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. John chapter 5. We'll read the first nine verses here. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well picked up his mat, and started to walk. In the upcoming chapters, John is going to specify which Jewish festivals are happening because they tie in thematically with what Jesus says and what he does. Uh, but here, we're, we're not told the specific Jewish festival because probably because it wasn't directly re, uh, related or relevant to this miracle as much as the day on which the miracle was uh, performed is relevant. And we'll get to that detail in a minute. Uh, we'll see that when we, when we pick back up in verse 9. But the, the, the mention of this festival helps us see that, Jew, uh, that uh, Jesus had left the Jewish region of Galilee, okay, where he had come from, or where he was last, we saw last week at the end of chapter 4, uh, when he healed the, the uh, uh, not the Roman official, the royal official's son. Okay? 
And now he's back in Jerusalem in the region of Judea, Jewish country again, just like uh, Galilee was Jewish country uh, predominantly. Jerusalem was a walled city. It was up on a, a plateau. And on the northeast corner of the city by the wall, there was a gate called the Sheep Gate. And by that gate, there was a pool called Bethesda, which in Aramaic, uh, which is the Aramaic word for that pool, and the translation means uh, house of mercy, which is really fitting when you consider there's a large number of disabled people sitting there waiting to be healed, right? Now, if you were reading along with me, you might have noticed that verse 4 is missing. That's not a typo. We need to remember that chapter and verse numbers weren't added until the beginning of the third, 13th century to make it easier for us to find things, okay? So it's not like, oh, verse 4 is not in there, so now we can't, none of this is believable, right? Most likely your Bible includes it as a footnote instead of the main text. It describes a superstition that, that several people believed in that, in that time in which uh, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters here at the pool of Bethesda, and when that happened, the first person that jumped into the water got healed. So you wanted to be the first person in there when, when the, the, the uh, water was stirred. Now, that statement is found in some of the original copies of John's gospel, but not in all of the copies of John's gospel. So it's, prob- it's probable that that was added in at a later time by a scribe who, who copied one of the copies. Okay? It doesn't mean the whole thing falls apart. simply means that John was probably not the original author of that. But when we look at verse 7, it confirms for us that this was at least, uh, uh, this superstition or something like it was uh, what this man believed because he tells Jesus, listen, when the water gets stirred up, I lose every time. I lose every time. Somebody else beats me there and I don't get healed, right? Verse 7 also reveals the man's frustration at Jesus' question. When Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Like, the man was essentially like, what do you think? Right? 38 years I've been sitting here. I, I just, I, I work on my tan while I'm sitting here. Right? What do you think? Yes, I want to get well. Wouldn't you want to get well? We're not given this man's specific disability, but whatever it was, it rendered him unable to move on his own for 38 years, think about that. I'm 42. That's most of my whole life. 38 years of disability, un, unability. I'm going to make that a word for right now. Inability, there it is, and unability. He'd been lying there among the colonnades for a, for a long time, right? Which means that somebody brought him there because he couldn't bring himself there. But at, at some point, they were either unwilling to stay or unable to stay and wait with him and help him get into the pool when the water was stirred. And since he couldn't move on his own, somebody else always beat him there. Somebody else always beat him to the pool. He was so close and yet so far away. And he was really, really hopeless and bitter about it. Have you ever felt that way? wanting your life to change but feeling powerless to do anything about it and frustrated about the way that the things the, the way that things are listen Jesus is keen on showing up in our lives when we're in that place he specializes in hopeless moments like these 
Look at Christ's compassion here. We're told that a, there were a large number of disabled people who, who were lying there under the colonnades waiting for the water to stir. Last week, we watched Jesus heal the royal official's son without even being in the same town. It was a day's walk from Capernaum to Cana. Jesus is in Cana, and he's, go, your son will live. Bam, that's when it happened. Surely Jesus could have stood there among this, the colonnades with all of this large number of people and with a word healed every one of them, right? But what did he do? He singled out this one man, walked up to him, this one man who essentially had given up, and with, with eight words, Jesus instantly undid 38 years of physical inability of soul-crushing disablement. Do you want to get well? Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And that's exactly what the man did. Before Jesus came to this man, this man couldn't even pick himself up. Now he was walking away with his mat tucked under his arm. Walking, walking away. And that's what led to the conflict. Look at Look at the second part of verse 9, and we'll keep going through uh, verse 16. Now that day was the Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath, that law or the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is the man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That last part of verse 9, the first, first sentence we read, gives us some really pertinent information. Very, very important that we need to realize here Jesus healed this man on what? The Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was a very important day of the week in Jewish life. It was a day that God had instituted for his people as a reminder for them to rest in his power and his provision instead of relying on their own power, their own ability to provide for themselves, and to trust that he is the one who makes them holy, even as he calls them to be holy. It was a day set aside where people stopped doing their regular work and they focused especially on, on worshiping God. It was a day of self-denial and God-dependence. Self-denial and God-dependence. Now, back when we started going through the book of Genesis, you, you probably remember this, we saw that God created the universe in six days and then what did he do on the seventh? He rested from his work of creation. He, he blessed that day and he called it holy because of that, then, when God rescued Israel from Egypt and made them uh, his own people and gave them uh, the rules to follow, the Ten Commandments, commandment number four, God put it in there, directed his people to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And the reason was because God himself rested on the seventh day. But over and over again throughout the Old Testament, Israel was indicted, not for 
keeping the Sabbath, but for profaning the Sabbath instead of keeping it holy. Why? Because they constantly turned away from God and constantly tried to rely on themselves or on the gods of other nations. They failed miserably at keeping God's rules, at keeping his commands. And over time, the Jewish rabbis and religious leaders who were staunch rule followers became so concerned with what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy that they tried to define every possible thing that constituted as work so that they would be sure not to do those things on the Sabbath. They were rule followers who added their own rules to God's rule. They came up with 39 different categories of work. I'm not going to list them all, but one of those categories prohibited anyone from carrying anything from one place to another on the Sabbath. Not allowed. Can't pick up something and walk it, not even one step, and set it down. Except for in, in cases of compassion, say, like uh, carrying someone who is an invalid and can't walk themselves down to a pool. Here's the irony. In their efforts to keep the law, these rabbis and religious leaders overcomplicated it by adding their own traditions to it. And according to their traditions, it would have been fine for someone to pick this disabled man up and walk him down to the pool and set him in it. But as soon as he got healed, it was against the rules for him to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. Chances are this man had been lying there under the colonnades long enough that these religious leaders uh, would recognize who he was. But did you notice in verse 10 that they completely overlooked the fact that he got healed? They're like hall monitors, right? Was anybody ever a hall monitor in school? It's probably not even a thing anymore. Thank the Lord. They completely missed it. They completely missed the fact that he was healed, and they went right to accusing him of breaking the law. The, the man's response to their accusation, though, wasn't really any better. He only mentioned his healing so that he could pass the buck on the law-breaking. He was like, hey, listen, the guy who healed me made me pick up my mat, told me to walk. That's the guy you want to talk to. And so they're like, okay, who's this guy? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. He didn't have a clue. Now listen, if you were just instantly healed from a 38-year disability, debilitating physical disability, rendering you unable to move, wouldn't you want to know as much as you could about the one who just healed you? Wouldn't you use your brand new legs to chase him down and find out who he is, to learn more about him, see what else he's up to? If nothing else, to say thank you. Nearly four decades had passed. No one else has helped this man. And then suddenly this man that he's never seen before comes along and immediately, using nothing more than a simple command, he rid him completely of his ailment. The man just gets up and walks away. Now, Let's give him a little bit of benefit of the doubt, right? Nobody beats Jesus in a game of hide-and-seek, okay? 
Verse 13 says that Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. If he doesn't want to be found, you're not going to find him. We'll see that multiple times in John's gospel. But there's no indication here that the man used his healed legs to go look for the one who had healed him. Instead, it was Jesus then who later found the man. And when the man realized who it was that healed him, he didn't just like, oh, all right, I'll go with you now. No, he turned and he went and used his healed legs to go back to the religious leaders that, and, and tell them, hey, the Sabbath breaker, the guy you're looking for, it's Jesus. That's his name. And so they set their sights on Jesus and started persecuting him. This, this disabled man is, is small potatoes now compared. When Jesus found the man in the temple complex. He said something peculiar to the man in verse 14. Did you catch that? He said, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, we know from Scripture that enough to understand that sickness and disease and physical ailments are, are all swept up in the aftermath of the rebellion in the garden. They're, they're a product of the sinful fall because sin has corrupted all of creation, especially and in including the human body. But it's not often that a disability is directly linked to a specific sin that a person has committed. I say not often because... It is true sometimes, and it appears to be that way here. In chapter 9, we'll see that Jesus is going to heal a blind man, and he'll tell his disciples specifically, clearly, that the man's blindness was not a direct result of his sin. They even ask him the question. He's like, no, no, no. This man is this way so that God's work might be displayed in him. And yet here it seems that Jesus implied that this man's disability was actually the consequence of a specific sin, and so he came to him and he warned him not to continue in it or the consequences would be far more devastating. You got a lot more to worry about than, than legs that don't work. Now, those may seem like harsh words from Jesus, but we need to remember, Jesus is never wrong in his assessment of the human heart. He never gets it wrong, not one time. He's never fooled by anything that we say or do. He's always, he always knows our motives behind our actions. He always understands the spiritual danger that we bring upon ourselves that we don't even realize. And he lovingly brings that to our attention so that we will then turn to him instead of continuing in our sin. And he's able to say and do these things because of who he is. See, this, this story is not primarily about the man who was healed. That's the occasion, but it's about the man who healed him. That's the person, because the one who healed him is no ordinary man. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. When the Jews pressed the issue of Jesus breaking the Sabbath, Jesus pushed back and pressed the issue of his identity as the Son. Let's look at verse 17. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began to try all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does... The Son likewise does these things, for the Father loves the Son 
and shows him everything he's doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Even though they understood that God rested on the seventh day from his work of creation, the Jews also recognized that God continues his work of providence, sustaining the universe so that it doesn't all fall apart. He continues to do that even now. When I was a kid, I always felt better going to sleep at night knowing that my dad was still awake. Why? Because I knew that he was watching out for the house and the family. I knew that he was going to protect us. Psalm 121 says, The Lord, our protector, does not slumber or sleep. Well, that's really good news for us, isn't it? He does not slumber or sleep. Hebrews 3.1 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. When Jesus told the Jews, my father is still working and I am working also, he was claiming equality with God. That was a shocking statement for these Jews who were very familiar with the scroll of Isaiah where God proclaims, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal? The rhetorical answer is nobody, right? Now, that statement shouldn't shock us, though, as the readers of this gospel because John has already made this abundantly clear from the get-go. Remember what he said about Jesus in chapter 1? John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things are created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word is God, and the word is the Son. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. What these Jewish religious leaders failed to see was that God's work of providence was meant to reveal his work of redemption, and his work of redemption is most clearly seen in the work of his Son. Jesus was telling them, when you look at what I'm doing, you see what God is doing. When you look at what I'm doing, you see what God is doing. Why? Because the Son never does anything contrary to the Father. His will always matches the Father's will, always. Listen, I can't, as much as I love my dad, I can't say that my dad and I have always been on the same page about everything in life. But God the Son and God the Father have never even one time contradicted each other. Think about that for a minute. Why? 
because they're in perfect unity, perfect community with one another. Jesus is painting this beautiful picture of the nature of the Trinity for us here. He'll develop this further when we get into chapters 14 through 16, when we hear more about the Holy Spirit. But here he's, he's pulling back the curtain for us, and he's giving us a glimpse into this extraordinary relationship that, the, that God the Father has with God the Son. Listen, the Father loves the Son, Don't miss that. That's a huge point right here. The the Father loves the Son. Back in chapter 3, John told us the Father loves the Son and has given everything into his hands. Here, Jesus told the Jews, the Father loves the Son and has shown him everything that he's doing. The love that the Father and the Son share with one another is absolutely perfect. It's perfect. It withholds nothing. And it shares and gives everything. It never fails. It never fades. It never ends. It's the purest of pure. It is the defining picture of what love is because God is love himself. He's always existed in perfect loving community with himself as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hard to wrap our minds around that completely. Each one distinct in his role, but the same in nature and essence. This, this is incredibly good news to us, though. Even if we can't fully grasp the reality of what it is. This disabled man at the pool of Bethesda, he was in great need, right? We can all recognize that. He couldn't help himself. That left him hopeless and bitter, but God did not come to us because he had great need. That would be a lousy God. God came to us because we have great need. Because he exists in perfect unity, in perfect community, and in perfect love with himself as the Trinity. God lacks nothing ever, and yet he still created us knowing that we would fail him, and yet he still came to us. Is that not love? Why did he do that? Because in his goodness, he desired to share this perfect love with sinful and incomplete people and bring us then into perfect unity and community and love with him. Remember John 3, 16? For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The father sent the son whom he loves perfectly into the world that he loves perfectly. And he sent his son because we failed to love God perfectly and our sin rendered us disabled, hopeless, bitter, and unable to help ourselves. Jesus came to us in the same love by by which he was sent. One pastor put it this way. I love this. Jesus' claims of equality with the Father demand that we see two hearts beating as one. It's the same love. Look at verse 19 again. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. They share equally in the work because they are one in essence and nature and will. But that doesn't mean that they do the exact same things. They have different roles. The Father did not come and die on the cross and rise from the grave. He sent the Son to do that. Over and over and over in John's gospel, we see Jesus using this phrase, I've been sent by the Father, the one who sent me. 
And Jesus did these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. But that also does not mean that the Father was a bystander in the crucifixion and the resurrection of his Son. The Father shared in the same love with his son, and they shared in the same sacrifice. The father shared in the pain of the cross by pouring out his holy wrath on the son that he loves perfectly so that he could pour out his love on sinners who deserve his holy wrath. And the son willingly took the father's wrath upon himself because he has that same love for sinners. And the father shared in the joy of the resurrection by raising Jesus from the grave so that together they might grant eternal life to people who are dead in their sin. Verse 21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he wants. Giving life to the dead is part of the greater works that Jesus was talking about at the end of verse 20. We'll see this in chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead, physically from the grave. But the ultimate display of that will come when Jesus himself is raised from the dead in chapter 20. And as the risen Messiah King, Jesus will also be the ultimate judge. The Jews understood from the Hebrew scriptures and other writings that God alone had the ability both to raise the dead and the authority to pronounce judgment upon the world. Remember Genesis 18, what Abraham called God? When he's telling him, hey, what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah, won't the judge of all the earth do what is right? But here Jesus boldly claimed those prerogatives for himself. And on top of that, he claimed himself worthy of the honor that was due to God alone, going so far as to say, listen, if you honor me, if you honor the Son, you honor the Father. If you don't honor me. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. This is why the Jews began trying all the more not just to persecute him, but to kill him. Because he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. None of us can read this account and deny that these are the claims that Jesus was making. The man standing in front of the Jews was in no uncertain terms, that man being Jesus himself, was in no uncertain terms claiming to be God himself. And we, what we must do then is what the Jews had to do to decide whether or not to believe the claims that Jesus made about himself. To believe his claims is to honor the Son, and to honor the Son is to honor the Father. To deny his claims is to dishonor the Son, and to dishonor the Son is to dishonor the Father. So what have you decided? Will you believe in the one who says, truly I tell you? Or will you deny the one to whom the Father has given all judgment? Why not be honest about your need and, about, uh, and, and honor the Son by turning from your sin and trusting in Him? He already knows. He already knows. He knows your need. That's why He came. The Jews thought that they were honoring God by honoring the Sabbath. But they were honoring themselves by elevating their traditions, their own rules over God's actual law. And they accused Jesus, God Himself, mind you, of dishonoring the Sabbath that God himself had put in place by breaking their man-made rules, their traditions. And they accused him of dishonoring God by claiming equality with him. 
we too dishonor God when we honor ourselves and our traditions over honoring the Son. Listen, we got to be careful not to make people jump through man-made hoops and call that God-honoring. We have to be careful not to overlook God's healing work in someone's life because we're so focused on the sin that remains. Anybody here done with it? We all have it. It remains in all of us. And yet, we're, we're gladly seeing God's work in our lives. Instead, we need to help others look to the sun as we look to the sun ourselves, honestly, freely confessing, pointing to the reality of our disabling sin and our tremendous need, and honestly pointing to the reality of his perfect love and his abundant provision. When we do that, that is when we honor the sun. And when we honor the sun, that is when we honor God. For all who honor the sun, there is great reward. Jesus has another truly, I tell you, statement here. And this time it's not just about him. We get to share in this one as well. Look at verse 24. We'll read through the end. Truly I tell you, anyone here who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted also to the Son to have life in, his, in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this because the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. They'll get up. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is a beautiful picture of the, what, we, what we call the already and the not yet. We've already seen very clearly in John's gospel that those who believe have eternal life. That's the whole purpose of his gospel, right? That by believing he is the Messiah, the Son of, of God, you might have life in his name. But that's not just something that we receive at the end of this life. It's not something we wait for completely. It's something that begins in us right now already. It's also part of the greater works that Jesus was talking about in verse 20. He came to give spiritual life to dead hearts, to resurrect people who were dead in their sin. Jesus healed the man at the pool by his word. He told the man, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And that's exactly what the man did. But Jesus also warned the man by his word. He told the man, do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. You see, Jesus always gets to the heart, always gets to the heart. He healed this man physically, but the man still needed to be healed spiritually. And that only comes by hearing Jesus' word and believing it. The man may have gained the ability to walk, but, but he's still a dead man walking unless he believed in Jesus Christ. The glorious word of truth that Jesus spoke in verse 24 is that anyone, anyone, listen, anyone who hears, who not only hears what he says, but also believes in it, that person is healed spiritually. 
When you hear his word and you believe it, your dead heart is made alive through the spiritual resurrection. You have passed from being dead in your sin to being alive in Christ forever. You will not come under judgment for your sin because Christ was already judged for your sin in your place. In verse 25, Jesus said, an hour is coming and it's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and all who hear will live Jesus told the man at the pool to get up physically, but he came to do so much more than that, right? We know this. He came to speak to people who were dead in sin and tell them to get up, take hold of eternal life and walk with me. And he can do that because just as the Father has life in himself, so also the Son has life in himself. And as those who've been given eternal life in him already, listen, we have joy We have the joy of looking forward to what we have not yet received, total freedom from the presence of sin because we will forever be in the face-to-face presence of the one who rid us of it, Jesus Christ. But the one who gives life and freedom to those who believe in him will also pass final judgment on all of those who reject him. A time is coming still yet to come, the not yet When all of those who are lying in their graves will hear his voice and they will get up, they will rise and everyone everywhere will stand before Christ as the judge of all the earth and give an account of our lives. Listen, you will stand before Jesus. I will stand before Jesus. So will all of your family members, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, everyone you see when you walk out those doors today, when you drive home, every human being who has ever lived on that last day will face the judge. And we will give an account for our lives. Think about this. These Jewish leaders who wanted to kill Jesus, they're dead. They're, they've long since died from us reading this, this, this time. 2,000 years or, or so. They've been gone. And if they died without first believing the claims that Jesus made, then you know what they did? They had to stand before the judge of all the earth and explain why they chose to honor the 39 categories of Sabbath rules that they made instead of honoring the son who rules over the Sabbath. But if they believed the claims that Jesus made, if they believed his claims before they physically died, then they did not come under judgment when they met the judge when they stood before the son. Instead, they passed from death to life. Listen, no one is exempt from standing before Jesus. But here's the glorious news of the gospel. All who believe in him will be exempt from condemnation when we stand before him. Jesus wasn't saying in verse 29 that salvation is based on our works. He's saying that our works will reveal the true condition of our hearts. Whether or not we've honored the Son by believing in Him, no one can work his or her way out from under the condemnation of a holy God who judges sin. We only come out from under condemnation when we have rested in the finished work of His Son. If you honor the Son by believing in Him, then you have every reason to look forward to the day of judgment to come because you will look upon the face of the judge and you will see him as the one who was judged for you. 
on your behalf, and he will right every wrong and resolve every injustice that you have faced in this life, even the ones that you've committed yourself. But if you dishonor the son by rejecting him, then you have every reason to fear that day to come because you will look upon the face of the judge and you will see that your sin remains. And you'll be condemned for every wrong and injustice that you've committed in this life. The time to believe is right now, while you're physically alive. You don't have to remain in spiritual death. You can hear the words of Jesus, you can believe them, and you can pass from death to life. You can come out from under condemnation and judgment Will you honor the son? Will you rest in his work or will you rely on your own? The son did not seek his own will, but the will of him who sent the son. Just as Jesus listens to the father and does what he says, so too must we listen to the son and do what he says. Yes, resting in the son means that we don't have to rely on our own works to earn salvation. Praise God, right? But resting in the sun doesn't mean that we never have work to do. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. To honor the Son is to believe in the Son, and belief in the Son results in obedience to God. Trusting in Jesus doesn't mean that we throw out the rule book. It actually means that we pay more attention to it, and we understand it more fully, not fully, fully. We need to make sure we get that right. We understand it more fully because we see how it's fulfilled in Jesus but here's how you know that you're actually honoring the son when you follow the rules. You just answer this question. Do you love him? Do you love him? We can, we can wrestle all day long, do I honor him? Or we can just ask this question and say, do I love him? If you've truly experienced and embraced God's perfect love for you through Christ, listen, it's impossible not to love him back. There is nothing that matches that kind of love. That love doesn't just demand a response. It, it initiates the response. We won't always show our love for God as perfectly as he shows his love for us. We can probably all relate to that even this morning. But as believers, we share in his perfect love nonetheless because the Holy Spirit now lives in us. And one of the ways that we express our love for Christ is by our obedience to him. John chapter 14, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit after he returned to the Father. And in the midst of that promise, Jesus says this to his disciples and then by extension to us. If you love me, you will keep my commands. It's the Spirit who lives in us, who enables us not only to embrace God's love for us, but then also gives us the desire and the ability to love and obey God. Throughout his gospel, John never refers to himself by name. He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Not because he thought he was Jesus' favorite, but because he understood the gift of love that Jesus had given to him, even though he knew that he was undeserving of it. Later in one of his letters, he wrote this, 1 John 5, 3 and 4. For this is what 
love for God is to keep his commands. But he adds this, and his commands are not a burden. There's not 39 categories of do this and don't do that. Jesus says it, the whole law can be summed up this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. John continues, his commands are not a burden because everyone who's been born of God conquers the world. That's pretty awesome. And I mean awesome in every sense of the word. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. We conquer the world by believing in the Son. We live for God because we love God and we believe in his son. We don't come up with 39 categories of work that we can't do on the Sabbath. Instead, we gather together here weekly on the Lord's Day to focus especially on worshiping the one who finished the work of salvation on our behalf. That's what we sang about in all the songs this morning. It's done. He did it. This day is a very important day of the week for the Christian life. It's a day that Christ instituted for his people as a reminder for us to come in every Sunday, every regular or every Lord's Day and and rest in his power and his provision instead of relying on our own and to trust that he and he alone is the one that makes us holy, even as he calls us to be holy. And then we go about the work that he's given us to do from that rest and not for that rest. We continue to live in self-denial and in God dependence. The Christian life is not about following a set of rules so that God will love us. It's about following Christ and his commands because God has already given us his perfect love in Christ. And Jesus has given us his perfect love by giving us himself. You see, it's easy to assume that we're honoring God because we're following the rules. Sometimes we focus so much on whether or not we're following the rules that we fail to think about whether or not we're actually following the Son, following Jesus. But following God is more than just honoring a list of rules. If you want to honor God, then you must honor the Son. So may our works reflect our rest in the Son, In Jesus, may we honor him with our lives even as we imperfectly express our love for the one who loves us perfectly. And may we seek not to do our own will, but to do his will. Why? So that we have something to rejoice about on the last day, but also so that while we remain here, others who are dead in their sin will hear his voice to get up, take hold of eternal life and walk with me and they'll live. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your son. We thank you for the perfect love that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray that by the power of your indwelling spirit that you would enable us in an ever-increasing manner to express that love back to the one who loves us so well. We might follow you in obedience, not to earn anything, but because we can rest fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ so that he is honored and you are glorified. We pray this all in his mighty name. Amen.